Now this afternoon, I call your attention once again to one of my favorite books in the Bible, the book of Job. And I think what I'll do this afternoon, I have a bunch of verses highlighted here to read, but I think I'm going to restrict myself to the 25th chapter of Job. You will notice as soon as you look it up, this is the shortest chapter in the entire book, but six verses. But in these verses, Bildad raises a question that is brought up on numerous occasions throughout the book of Job. And that question is um, found in verse 4. How then can man be justified with God? How then can man be justified with God? Let's look at uh, the whole chapter here. This is Bildad. This is coming to the end of the debate with Job. Bildad, in fact, here is the last one to speak. The debate goes almost three full rounds, but Zophar does not bother to speak a third time. Could be that he was so flustered by that time that uh, words forsook him. He was so angry with Job by then. So Bildad is the last of the friends to speak and to raise his case against Job. Look at what it says, beginning in verse 1. Then answered Bildad the Shuite and said, Dominion and fear are with him. He maketh peace in his high places. Is there any number of his armies? And upon whom doth not his light arise? How then can man be justified with God? Or how can he be clean that is born of a woman? Behold, even to the moon, and it shineth not. Yea, the stars are not pure in his sight. How much less man that is a worm, and the son of man which is a worm. Amen. We'll end our reading at the end of the 25th chapter. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. A number of our churches designate the whole month of October to Reformation Month. Some of them will take each Sunday in the month of October to preach on some kind of Reformation theme. Uh, I, as a general rule, have restricted myself to the last Sunday of the month to at least touch upon a Reformation theme. And that's what I would like to do. And I'm sure you'll recognize at once that a key theme in the Reformation is being raised by Bildad when he asks this question in verse 4. How then can man be justified with God? That really was the key question to the Protestant Reformation. But not just to the Protestant Reformation. Arguably, you could say, that's a key question that was raised in the book of Job. And just as in the book of Job you find an extended debate between Job and his friends, so during the Reformation you found great debates between, I think, a Martin Luther in particular and various representatives, scholars, theologians, if you will, 
from the Roman Catholic Church. So the key issue, I say, in the book of Job is also the key issue behind the Protestant Reformation, and that issue has to do with a man's standing with God. How should man be just with God? Job himself asks that question, chapter 9 and verse 2. How then can man be justified with God, or how can he be clean that is born of a woman? Bildad asks in chapter 25 and verse 4. And there are numerous other references that come out in the book of Job in which that question is answered or something very similar to that question is asked. It seems that in the course of the debate between Job and his friends, they would keep coming back to that question. And understandably, it's a very important question. You could say the eternal destiny of your soul depends on your answer to that question, the right answer to that question. We may note back in, uh, all the way back, and I won't have you turn to it now, but in Job chapter 1 and verse 5, we come to discover that Job did understand in some measure the gospel of Jesus Christ. He saw the need for substitutionary atonement. You may recall in that opening chapter, it was his regular practice to offer burnt offerings for his children. He saw the need for substitutionary atonement. He knew the strength of inbred sin. He was very much afraid that his children may have cursed God in their hearts. Externally, they may have appeared fine. They may have been and probably were upright in their appearance and in their conduct. But Job recognized that sin goes deeper than that. He was afraid they would have sinned in their hearts. And so it became and was his regular practice to offer the burnt offerings for his children. It's fair to say that Job, in some measure, saw Christ in those burnt offerings. We know, don't we, from Christ's own testimony concerning Abraham, that when Abraham was about to sacrifice his son Isaac, God prevented him. Abraham discovered a ram caught in a thicket. He offered that ram as a burnt offering. And with reference to that burnt offering, Christ himself says in John 8 and verse 56 that Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. Which I think indicates very clearly that Abraham was able to make some connection. We don't know how full he can make that connection. Probably not as complete as we're able to make it today with the New Testament before us. But he certainly saw some connection between the sacrifice and Christ. He rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Well, I think based on that example, you could say the same thing with regard to Job. He would have rejoiced to see Christ's day and saw it and was glad. The burnt offering was designed to point people to Christ. And so we conclude that Job looked to Christ. He saw him as his redeemer. He calls him that in this book. I know that my redeemer liveth. 
He had faith in his Redeemer. So based on the merit of Christ, through his faith in Christ, you could say of Job, he was justified. God himself declared him to be perfect and upright. You find that in chapter 1 twice. You find it again in chapter 2, that God himself makes that declaration about Job. Now I should perhaps point out with regard to that declaration concerning Job, many commentators see the word perfect That's what God says of Job. He's perfect and upright. One who fears God and eschews evil. And the word perfect does not refer uh, so much to sinless perfection as it does to Job's sincerity. Oftentimes that's the case. You have to bear that in mind when you see that word perfect in the Bible. What is in view here? Is it sinless perfection? Um, Well, if it's being spoken of with regard to any child of Adam. It can't be that. So there's a general recognition that perfection refers to sincerity. Be that as it may, our sincerity does not carry sufficient merit to justify us. Even our sincerity is tainted with sin. Romans 7, Paul speaks of a spiritual law. Even when I would do good, evil is present with me. And so it is not our sincerity that merits God's pardon or his favor. It is Christ who has won for us God's pardon. In the opening chapters of Job, you find that testimony given by God concerning Job. Only you, read, you pick up on a detail uh, when you come into chapter 2. And in verse 3 it says, And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there's none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? And then comes the added statement, And still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him, to destroy him without cause. I've often been struck by that last phrase, without cause. There are those, you know, that devote themselves to the study of Job in search of Job's sin. What is it that this man did that brought this kind of treatment of God upon him When in fact that question is answered for us by God himself, when he says to the devil, uh, you move me against him to destroy him without cause. So there was no cause in Job that was bringing this affliction upon him. This was strictly a matter of God's sovereign prerogative to test one of his children, to try them the way he saw fit to, And this wasn't with reference to sin in Job's life at all. Still, he holdeth fast his integrity, God says. And in the debate that ensues over the next several chapters between Job and his friends, the integrity of Job would come under attack. The integrity of his faith would be under attack. His friends would insist that he couldn't possibly be right with God And they would cite his awful circumstances as proof. 
And yet for Job to agree with his friends would be, in effect, to deny the gospel. To deny the grace and the merit of the sacrifice, it would be, in a sense, a denial of the gracious, glorious truth of justification by faith. Now we know that the devil was behind the attack upon Job, and the devil has been attacking the doctrine of justification by faith throughout the history of redemption right up to this present hour. And this has made it necessary for the church to defend this doctrine against such attacks. And on an individual level like Job, we must be able to understand (coughs) and defend this doctrine against all the attacks that are leveled against it. There is a sense, you know, in which the flesh hates the doctrine of justification by faith because this doctrine does away with all pride. There's no room for boasting when this doctrine is understood. It's eliminated. The first step toward being justified is the honest acknowledgement that we stand condemned on account of our sins. That's the default mode. That's where we begin. That's where every child of Adam begins, who comes into this world condemned for his sins. Now, the pride of man refuses to make that kind of acknowledgement. I remarked along the way that there will be nobody in heaven who didn't first see himself as bound for hell. Hell-bound and hell-deserving. That's what it takes. That's the starting point to salvation. But to those that are honest enough to see themselves for what they are, Christ offers to be their sin-bearing substitute. Your sins imputed to him, his righteousness imputed to you, And on the basis of that exchange, God can be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. But once that doctrine becomes a part of your creed and your experience, you will discover the need to defend it because the forces of hell will be devoted to moving you away from it. So the pride of sinful man hates this doctrine. Rome and other apostate churches hate the doctrine of justification because where that doctrine is understood, they have no sway over the souls of men that are set free. So Rome labors to deny that doctrine, to suppress that doctrine, or to corrupt that doctrine. And unfortunately, the understanding of that doctrine has become so weak today among so many that name the name of Christ that Rome's task has been all the easier. In fact, I read a book not too long ago that was pretty disheartening from the opening chapter that described how many people in evangelical Christianity are returning to the Church of Rome. Well, that could only happen when the doctrine of justification by faith has diminished in understanding and appreciation. It makes it essential for us to know, to understand, and to appreciate this great doctrine of the Reformation. We must understand it that we might live by it. We must understand it that we might defend it. 
Our peace and joy and liberty are at stake in this doctrine. The integrity of our faith is at stake in this doctrine. And like Job of old, our integrity comes under attack. And so today, for just a couple of moments, I want to draw your attention to the debate surrounding justification and how we must defend that doctrine. And I want to focus your attention uh, primarily, well, well, I'll deal with two of these, the second one I'll only touch briefly, but I want to call your attention to the situations that make it necessary for us to defend this doctrine. We must defend this doctrine, you see, when all the world opposes it. Now look with me, if you would, to Job chapter 5. Job chapter 5. This comes right in the middle of the speech by Eliphaz. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, Job's friends. Eliphaz is the first to speak. Uh, and, and to raise his charge against Job. And after, uh, his speech actually begins in chapter 4, but then when we come to chapter 5, look what he says in verse 1. He's talking to Job when he says, Call now, if there be any that will answer thee, and to which of the saints wilt thou turn? You see what he's saying there? Basically, he is condemning Job, or he is insisting that God is condemning Job, that Job's awful uh, torment and affliction is proof of that. And Eliphaz, it's as if he's saying, that's not, not, that's not just my opinion, Job. That's the opinion of all the saints. To which of the saints wilt thou turn? They're all on my side, Job. What Eliphaz is saying. Jump ahead a little bit to uh, chapter 8, if you would. Chapter 8, and this is Bildad speaking now, talking along the same lines, beginning in verse 8, Bildad talking to Job. For inquire, I pray thee, of the former age, and prepare thyself to the search of their fathers. For we are but of yesterday and know nothing, because our days upon earth are a shadow. Shall not they teach thee and tell thee and utter words out of their heart? Same line of argument there that Bildad is raising. We can read these passages of Scripture and conclude that Job didn't have a single ally in all the world. His friends were in agreement about his condition and what he must do. He must repent of his hypocrisy and turn to God. That was their opinion. And could I just say that for a man who has undergone severe and prolonged affliction, who pours his heart out to God and seeks God with all his heart and desperately wants to know from God the cause for his affliction about the dumbest thing in the world a counselor can say to a man in such a state is what Eliphaz says in chapter 5 and verse 8. I would seek unto God, and unto God would I commit my cause I can almost hear Job muttering under his breath, Well, thanks, Eliphaz, I never thought of that. 
Now, according to Eliphaz and Bildad, any source that Job would see fit to consult would side with them against him. This argument was such an open and shut case in their eyes, and in the spirit of what he takes to be the obvious, Eliphaz says at the end of his speech, chapter 5, verse 27, Lo this, or behold this, or give heed to this, we have searched it, so it is, hear it, and know thou it, for thy good. Call now, if there be any that will answer thee. Eliphaz says, chapter 5 and verse 1. And to which of the saints wilt thou turn? The implication being, of course, that all the saints align themselves with Eliphaz. Same with Bildad. Inquire, I pray thee, of the former age. Prepare thyself to the search of their fathers. Chapter 8, verse 8. Shall they not teach thee and tell thee and utter words out of their heart? Oh, you can almost see in some measure uh, an attempt at humility on the part of Bildad. Uh, we're nothing. We're born just a few days ago. But look to the fathers. Look to the ancients. Look to any source you choose, Job. And they all align with what we've concluded about your condition. Poor Job. Everybody and everything seems to be against him. His circumstances tell him that God must be condemning him. His friends tell him that God must be condemning him. His own wife counsels him to curse God and die. His friends insist that the saints and the fathers all agree with them. Maybe he really is a hypocrite. He must have been tempted to think. But as God himself says of him in chapter 2 and verse 2, still he holdeth fast his integrity. And as Job would say during the course of his trial, chapter 27, verse 5, God forbid that I should justify you. Till I die, I will not remove mine integrity from me. Now we should note in our study this afternoon that Job's integrity did not consist in sinless perfection. He didn't think that of himself. His continual practice of offering burnt offerings demonstrates to us his knowledge of sin, the need for forgiveness, the grounds of a substitutionary atonement. His integrity consists, therefore, in his faith in what God had revealed about sin and about the forgiveness of sin. His integrity consisted in his willingness to submit to God and even in his gratitude to God for his every dealing. This integrity is expressed for us in that memorable saying back in chapter 1, verse 21, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This statement could not be uttered by Job without the belief that in spite of his losses, God still favored him. The Reformers at the time of the Reformation found it necessary to defend their integrity also. They had to defend the integrity of their doctrine much the same way Job had to defend the integrity of his doctrine. 
And it's interesting to note that in the case of the Reformation, Rome's initial response to the doctrine of justification by faith was the same kind of response that Job's friends held regarding Job's standing with God. The Pope and all his representatives, the emperor and his princes, the bishops and their clergy, and generally both the civil and ecclesiastical partisans of the papal see aligned themselves to say the chief ground of their opposition to the doctrine of justification by faith was that it was a novel doctrine, a new invention crafted by Martin Luther himself. Nobody sides with you reformers, they said. Inquire of the former age and prepare thyself to the search of their fathers, Rome said in effect to the confession which was presented by Melanchthon to the Diet at Augsburg. This doctrine has no historical veracity, they protested. Who has ever even heard of such a thing being justified freely through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus? This doctrine was at direct variance with that which had prevailed a long time, hundreds, even thousands of years in the Romish church. And it was the doctrine of justification by faith that provoked the hostility of the papal see and the imperial diet the reformers were made to feel that unless they could consent to abandon or at least seriously modify this doctrine, they must expose themselves and their cause to imminent danger. Uh, you didn't take issue with the Church of Rome, and especially did you not do so if in the process of doing it uh, you were costing them money. You know, I've only come to realize, I guess, in recent times that um, just like the days in which we live in today, where doctrine is just not thought at all to be a thing of serious consequence, no matter what doctrine you hold to, the thing that is most important today is the flow of money. You know, it wasn't too awful different in the days of the Reformation either. The whole thing started when, uh, you, you've heard the story, I'm sure, when Tetzel uh, came to the city, I think of Wittenberg, I may be wrong with that city, uh, but he came beating his drum, uh, selling indulgences, put your money in the pot, you can get your relatives out of purgatory. The whole thing was a fundraising project uh, to build the Vatican building that stands to this day. I remember Dr. Panosian telling us he sees the Vatican building in Rome as being a monument to the Protestant Reformation because it was when the funds were being collected to build that impressive structure that Luther became so appalled at the practice that he nailed his 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg. Most of them being statements against this practice of selling indulgences. It cannot be denied, says Melanchthon, and Melanchthon was kind of the right-hand man for Luther. Uh, Melanchthon was kind of the brains, you could say, behind 
uh, the Reformation, where Luther was the brawn, if you will. Luther had the passion. Uh, Melanchthon had the knowledge. And it cannot be denied, Melanchthon says, that we are brought into trouble and exposed to danger for this one only reason that we believe the favor of God to be procured for us, not by our observances, but for the sake of Christ alone. And in reply to the charge that this was a novel doctrine, the Reformers admitted that the doctrine had for a long time been obscured and corrupted by false teaching and superstitious practices which generally prevailed. But they also affirmed that even though this doctrine has been covered over for a very long time, the doctrine itself is as old as the gospel of Christ and his apostles, to which they fearlessly appealed. Listen to these words from Luther himself. He says, I, Dr. Martin Luther, the unworthy evangelist of the Lord Jesus Christ, thus think and thus affirm that this article, namely, that faith alone without works justifies us before God, can never be overthrown. For Christ alone, the Son of God, died for our sins. But if he alone takes away our sins, then men with all their works are to be excluded from all concurrence in procuring the pardon of sin and justification. Nor can I embrace Christ otherwise than by faith alone. He cannot be apprehended by works. But if faith before works follow apprehends the Redeemer, it is undoubtedly true that faith alone before works and without works appropriates the benefit of redemption, which is no other than justification or deliverance from sin. This is our doctrine, so the Holy Spirit teaches, and the whole Christian church. In this, by the grace of God, will we stand fast. Amen. The words of Luther. Courageous words, easy to recite them today in the kind of day in which we live. Luther uttered such statements uh, to the peril of his life in his day. Though the whole world stood against them, including the dominating Church of Rome, the Reformers defended the doctrine of justification by faith on the ground that this is what the Bible teaches. And it should be point out, pointed out that throughout the history of Protestantism, those who have stood for the truth have always been willing to stand for what the Bible teaches. And if they could be proven wrong from scriptures, and Luther invited this, when he stood before that imperial diet, he said, show me that I'm wrong. Show me from God's word that I'm in error. Show me that this doctrine is false. I'll be the one to take the match to the books I've written. If I can be proven wrong from scriptures. Luther's memorable words forever engraved in the minds and hearts of all those who love the truth and freedom prove this point. 
As I said a, a moment ago, standing before the diet at Worms, being asked a second time for a direct answer as to whether or not he would retract the teaching of his books, he said before them all, I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to the councils because it is clear as day that they have frequently erred and contradicted each other's Unless, therefore, I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture or on plain and clear grounds of reason so that conscience shall bind me to make acknowledgment of error, I can and will not retract, for it is neither safe nor wise to do anything contrary to conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. Amen. You're able to see at once from Luther's statement a willingness to stand for the truth of Scripture. Though popes and councils throughout history would oppose him, the Bible is our supreme authority. We are and should be at all times willing to submit to what the Bible teaches. It's important for us to make such an affirmation in days like these because there has been for a long time a spirit within the world that says there are so many different ways to interpret the Bible. The various denominations within Christianity interpret the Bible according to their own prejudices. This was not the case with Luther before the Diet at Worms. It was not a question of what the Bible taught, especially with regard to justification. It was a matter of where the authority for our doctrine could be found. Is it to be found in popes or councils, or is it to be found in the Word of God alone? And most gladly do we rest our faith in what God has revealed and not in what men have concocted. And though all the saints so-called and all the fathers would seem to have their own ideas, although all would seemingly unite against us, still we should and we will base our faith on something more durable, tried and proven and sure, God's word. So the world seemed to be against Job, and the world seemed to be against the Reformers, but neither would sacrifice the integrity of their faith to the notions of men, nor should we. So the doctrine of justification must be defended, though all the world oppose it. Consider with me next, very briefly now, I'm not going to draw this out. The doctrine of justification must be defended even when circumstances seem to go contrary to it. Job's friends were only a part of the opposition that Job faced. His circumstances had taken about as sharp a turn as our imaginations can conceive. In a day, he went from being the richest man of the East to arguably the poorest. He lost all or most of his possessions. He went from being a healthy man to a man sore afflicted with disease. 
He was afflicted with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. Chapter 2 and verse 3 tells us commentators have speculated about the nature of his disease. If memory serves me right, the symptoms of some 14 different diseases have been put forth as possibilities by those who have tried to analyze the physical condition of Job. His day was certainly turned to night, or his light turned to darkness, you could say. John Calvin suggests that when Job's friends arrived to console him, they saw that his condition was much worse than they thought, so much so that their judgment concerning him was changed, and they concluded upon seeing him that he must be under the judgment of God. The thing we must note, however, and this comes out so clearly in the book of Job, the truth that God is sovereign over every circumstance that we endure. This trial from start to finish was ordained by God. I've heard people wrongly analyze this book by putting forth the idea that the book of Job is the story of the devil's challenge to God concerning Job. And while it is true that the devil did challenge God in a sense, that's a very incomplete summary analysis. It is God, you see, that first raises the name of Job to the devil, and not the other way around. Hast thou considered my servant Job? God asked Satan. Well, God's hand was in that trial from the beginning. And he set the boundaries to it. And he ordained the length of it. And he determined that through this trial, a purpose of grace would ultimately be served. And that his cause would be advanced. And so we find Job defending his integrity even in the bleakest of circumstances that surrounded his life. And yet the cause of grace was advanced. The question, of course, that comes to mind whenever we read the book of Job is, why, why does God allow his redeemed ones to undergo such suffering? And the answer is not really so hard to determine. He allows his redeemed ones to undergo suffering because God's own son would undergo suffering. And God's purpose is to conform us to the image of his son, which includes being made conformable unto his death. Oh, there is a purpose of grace in our sufferings because our Savior suffered and we're being conformed to him. Many of the reformers were conformed under the image of their Savior's death, and they were called upon in the sovereign good pleasure of God to defend their integrity even under the bleakest of circumstances. Job's friends were, according to Job, but miserable comforters. They were the unwitting tools of the devil. By way of contrast, the popes and their uh, minions were cruel and deliberate persecutors. And whether it be before miserable comforters or cruel persecutors, 
The followers of Christ are called upon to defend the integrity of their faith and the practice which springs from that faith in order to honor the Lord. So as we bring this meeting to a close this afternoon, let's remember what, is it Peter, I think, who writes, or James? Count it not strange concerning the fiery trial that has come to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. And in that same passage, God makes it very clear that the trial of your faith is more precious even of gold that perishes. Oh, may we share that same outlook and may we maintain the integrity of our faith even if we are regarded as the odd ones out. Let's close then in prayer. Let's all pray. We thank you, Lord, as we bring this meeting to a close that we have so much church history to inspire and encourage us. And we are encouraged, O Lord, by the stand that men took from the past, especially as it pertains to the truth of our justification by faith alone. We pray, dear Lord, that by thy grace we will never stray from this doctrine. Though the world opposes it, though the circumstances of life seem to be against it, we look to thee, Lord, to uphold us. We honestly confess that we cannot stand in our own strength. And so we look to thee for the strength and the help that is needed to be defenders of the truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.